studied the great little book of James, but now we've finished that last week and we're heading back into this great psalm. Interestingly, there are many similarities between James and this psalm that we're looking at. Of course, James was very familiar with this psalm. He uh, probably knew it by heart. And James's contribution to the Bible was that he gathered tests of faith to help examine the authenticity of our relationship with God. Do we know God? Having studied James, we would have a good indication whether or not we do. I think James did a masterful job at getting us to see the important connection between what we say we believe and how we live. But here in Psalm 119, we have more opportunity to look, to look inward into our own souls through this window of God's Word and see the intended purposes God has for us and be challenged to make and take important steps towards Him. So I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at uh, this particular psalm. Um, and it, it is a psalm about getting to know God. Do you desire to know God more deeply? Do you desire that your walk with Christ is more intimate, more real, more genuine? Every Christian in the room would say, of course, right? Well, Psalm 119 is the gondola that takes us to that peak of spiritual experience, to the heights of greater appreciation of God and His love for us. In Psalm 119, we learned where to find God in every conceivable human experience. Whatever it is you're going for, Psalm 119, 119 teaches us how to find God there, how to look for Christ and all these things. To the, those who experience the majesty, greatness, and glory of God are those who get to know Him, those who trust Him, those who commune with Him on a daily basis. So if you want to know God, these are the things you must do. And Psalm 119 is a wonderful and God-intended vehicle for you to get from where you are to where you want to be spiritually. And so if you'll prayerfully meditate your way through this psalm and embrace the magnificent truths that we uncover here, Psalm 119 will get you to that place of spiritual well-being. As we move back now today into Psalm 119, we're going to be picking up in verse 57. This is the eighth stanza, eighth of 22. Each of these stanzas is titled by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, if you recall. And now we find ourselves in verse 57. So we're about one-third of the way through this, this uh, great psalm. My intent is, Lord willing, to do another eight stanzas, take a break, go back into the New Testament, uh, maybe pick up an epistle, and then come back and finish uh, Psalm 119 at some later date. But this particular stanza that we're in is called the Het Stanza, and it is to help us, the stanza's goal is to help us identify the authenticity of our faith. Imagine that ties right into James. And so here we are looking at this particular stanza, a transition from the, the book of James that asks the same kind of questions, pointed out the same realities. And what we're going to find is that we're going to see similar habits of all those people who know God. All right. Jonathan Edwards wrote of this great Psalm, Psalm 119, I know of no part of the Holy Scriptures, where the nature and evidences of true and sincere godliness are so fully and largely insisted on and delineated as in this Psalm 119. Throughout Christian history, great theologians, great pastors have all had a lot of good things to say about this Psalm. Why? Well, I think the longer we spend here, the more we realize, the more we see what they saw. 
This is a wonderful place to be if you want to become more in tune with Christ. If you want to know more about God, who he is, what he has done for you, if you want to possess God himself, this is a great place to be. If you remember, when I first introduced the psalm, uh, we found that there were eight synonyms. Some scholars think there's ten synonyms that, that uh, identify or name the word of God. They all dominate the Psalm 119, and so when we encounter these names of Scripture, I want you to keep in mind they're simply referring to the Word of God, even though each has a little nuance to our overall understanding of the contents of God's Word. These eight synonyms are as follows. Law, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, and promise. We heard them this morning used when Jared read. Here in verse 57, it's your words. So that is the title of the Word of God. And by the way, the, a title of the Word of God is used in every single uh, verse in this chapter, save three or four. Every single verse contains a title to the Word of God. And so, obviously, <laughs> the focus is the Word of God, how, the, how God uses the Word of God to create godliness in His people. So let me read for you again Psalm 119, verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. So the point of spending time in the Bible is more than just understanding doctrine. It's more than just learning nice Bible stories with a moral. Uh, spending time in the Bible is even more than learning about God's character. Spending time in the Bible, as Psalm 119 will point out repeatedly, is about possessing God. Having God be part of who you are. Understanding and embracing all that he is. Notice that he says, the Lord is my portion. The portion that the psalmist speaks of is not like a portion of the pie or his share, a little slice of inheritance out of all the other people who are sharing the inheritance. No, when, when Israel entered the promised land, you remember the Levites didn't receive any inheritance. You remember that? They got nothing. And yet they were part of the 12 tribes. So what's up with that? They were just placed in 48 different cities around the land. They got no inheritance, no land. But we read in Joshua chapter 13, verse 33, that they got something better than land. It says that their, their inheritance was God himself. The inheritance of the tribe of Levi was God himself. Which would you rather have? It's no surprise that we as Christians are called a kingdom of priests in the book of Revelation. Because our possession must be God also like the Levites of old. The psalmist knows that nothing is more valuable than God himself and to possess him is to possess all, like the Apostle Paul said, having nothing but possessing everything. So let's look at this verse, Psalm, 57, Psalm 119, verse 57. This verse has two parts, and so as creative as I am, there are two points to this sermon. Um, so the first is this, the godly portion. What is it that makes you tick? That's the question of portion. What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? We all have something. What is it? For you, is it sports, fishing, fitness, food, fashion, beauty, family? What is it? 
What's worthy of being that thing that makes your life work? God has created us with an infinite appetite for joy, for happiness. We can obviously overindulge in food, sports, fitness, but we can never overindulge in joy. Have you ever, have you ever heard anybody say, yo, stop, stop already, I'm too happy? No, it doesn't happen. I want you to flip back with me to the first two verses of this psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. What did we learn blessed meant? What's the equivalent in our language? Happy. Right. Happy. Joyful. Are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed, happy, joyful are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. So, where we could possibly find uh, overindulgence in all these worldly things, food, sport, fitness, and so forth, where are we going to find portions large enough to satisfy our infinite capacity that God has created with for happiness and joy? What's going to fill that massive space in your life, infinite space, to enjoy, to be happy? Well, whatever it is, it must be good, right? Isn't going to take, it's going to take something good to fill that, you would think. Anything bad or neutral, of course, wouldn't work. And what does Jesus tell, you, tell us that is good? In fact, the only good. Matthew 19, he says, only God is good, right? This is what Jesus tells us. And so, if God being good is able to fulfill this this massive void vacuum that he has created us with for joy and happiness. Let's look, look into this for a little bit. Uh, whatever it is that fills this must be good. And we see from scripture that God is intrinsically good. He's intrinsically good. He's good in and of himself. If anything else is good, it's, it's a derived good, right? It's, it's anything that you find in, in nature, anything you find in your house is a derived good. It doesn't it's not intrinsically good. The Bible tells us that God is good and human ex experience confirms this. Although there are significant difficulties to overcome in the idea of human suffering. Nevertheless, God is intrinsically good. Secondly, God is the best good there is. There are many goods. God is the best good. Other things, of course, are secondary to God because they're created good. Think back to the picture illustration I used a long time ago in this section of Scripture. Would you rather spend time with your wife or a picture of your wife? This is a, not a trick question, men. Your answer better be correct. Would you rather spend time with your wife or a picture of your wife? Of course, we'd rather spend time with our wives. The, the picture is good, but the wife is better, right? At least that's the way it should be. If we're going to pursue the created good over the good creator, then something isn't right. It's not wrong to enjoy created things. In fact, God created them to be enjoyed fully. But they do not displace the creator in our affections, do they? These created good things. God's good gifts in his creation are not meant to be ends in themselves, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They're intended to lead us back to their creator. The stream, for example, leads us back to the fountain. 
Let, let the, the good of the creation lead you to the intended end, which is the creator. The created good that, that God has provided are all intended to lead us to the invisible qualities of God, things like his goodness, his power, his excellency, his beauty, bounty, faithfulness, and so on, all designed with the same thing in mind, leading us to God, the source of those things. Unfortunately, the world, our flesh, and the devil distracts us from God, thinking that the created thing is best there is, instead of being designed by God to draw us to himself, we, we get distracted, don't we? Don't you? By these things the world you know, throws at us, shiny things. Um, well, think of it like this. If, if a prince of a great kingdom sent a messenger to a young maiden to deliver her an invitation to become his wife, and then she falls in love with the messenger, how would that go? He might make a good Hollywood story, but it'd be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Yes. God sends us good gifts, not so that we're enamored with the gifts, but so that those gifts will draw us to God himself, the greatest good. So what do you love about your spouse? Think about it for a moment, if you're married. What do you love about your spouse? Whatever that is, it's but a faint hint of what is full in Christ. What do you love about the outdoors? Whatever that is, is just a faint hint of what is full in Christ. What do you love about what is new? Or what do you love about whatever you love? Guess what? That's just a faint hint of what is full in Christ. That's their design. That's the purpose of those things. From the, the great goodness of our relationships to these things that we enjoy, out, the outdoors, sports, fitness, etc., they're all designed to draw us to the creator of those things. And guess what? God created each of those things with imperfections, intentionally. He created those things with imperfections so that when we see them, we'll desire something more, which we could tweak it just a little bit, and then it would be perfect, right? Even our spouses. Man, this would be just perfect if we could go click to the left, right? And we spend all our lives clicking um, with our spouses or any relationship for that matter. But God has intentionally designed our relationships and everything else in our lives that are good with a tad of imperfection to draw us to the source of perfection so that you won't be tempted to camp there, wherever there is, so that you won't think that your friendship is the ultimate source of your joy. So you don't think that that new thing or the outdoors hike is it. God has intentionally inserted a measure of imperfection. So this thing that, that fills our joy, fills our uh, happiness, first of all, must be good. And we see that God is intrinsically good. He's the best good. And now I want to show you that he is infinitely good. In the physical world, we know that if a lot of people choose the same thing, we have to share, right? And starting from day one of our lives, we are opposed to sharing. Right? Isn't this the hardest, one of the hardest things you teach your kids? You've got to share. Well, when we grow up, we still don't, we never really learned it. We don't like to share. 
Like, for example, you go to a potluck. What happens if you're at the end of the line? You get salad. That's it. The chicken's gone. The pizza's gone. The chocolate cake's gone. You get salad. Because you have to share. And we're not good at that. Titan Irrigation has shares, correct? Those of you who know what I'm talking about, Titan Irrigation, the water that flows through this valley, is on shares. If you have so many shares, you get to use so much water, but you have to share. They even call it shares. But with God, His goodness is infinite. Take as much as you want. What a joy. When it comes to God, we don't have less because so many of us enjoy him. His goodness is infinite. We get no less because so many are in Christ. It's like sunlight. Just because more people go outside to enjoy the sun doesn't mean that we get less if we go out there. No. The interesting thing about God is that the more that pursue and enjoy him the greater experience it is for the rest of us. Think about that. As a Sun Valley Church attendee, if you will enjoy Christ more, it will benefit the rest of us. It's the opposite of the potluck principle. The more you take of Christ, the better it is for me, and vice versa. You can be a blessing to this entire church if you'll but pursue Christ a little more. What a blessing. Why? Because he's infinite. There's no, we don't have to share Christ, although we do share Christ, right? And it's like a choir. Would you rather go to the Capitol Theater and listen to a 12-member choir or a 500-member choir? 500 probably, right? Why? Because the more, the better. And that's how it is with experiencing God. The more, the better. The more you enjoy Christ, the better it is for me and vice versa. This is why it's so good for you as spouses to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is why it's so important for you as parents to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because the more you love God, the more your kids will love God. And enjoy him. So God is intrinsically good. He is the best good. He is infinitely good. And now the fourth thing is he is eternally good. Do you know that this portion, the one the psalmist is speaking of, the one I'm speaking of, lasts forever? This will never run dry? All the good things that we know in this life eventually end when we die and many times before we die, the good things that we've experienced fade and die with us, right? But death cannot separate a godly person's portion from them. In fact, death actually removes everything that has stood in the way of you experiencing more completely this good God. Death removes any barrier there may have been. Now you can fully experience God. Death, according to Scripture, is our friend when it comes to the depth of our relationship with God. So the first thing, if whatever the portion is that you're going to choose, first thing, it's got to be good. Secondly, 
It must be attainable. We're going to be able to get to it. I mean, if, even if you think on a mundane level, if you can't get to it, how good is it? I mean, if they're putting stuff so high on the top shelf, you can't get to it, I, I don't care. I mean, you say that food's so great, but I can never get into the place to eat that. So it's got to be attainable. If something's going to be my portion, I've got to be able to access it. The Bible tells us that God has given himself to us. You are my people and I am your God. How many times do we read that in Scripture? He's promised to be our God. He's promised to hear us when we pray. He's promised never to leave us. And this means that God will act as God on our behalf. He will save. He will protect. He will guide. He will provide. You remember what Jesus said? There's at least three people in human history who've accessed God. He said, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those three guys accessed him. Why not me? Of course, it wasn't just those three. We know the Bible, right? Listen to what Peter said. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through a knowledge of him. So he's accessible. He's attainable. Who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them... Guess what? You may become partakers of the divine nature. God is accessible. God is attainable for us. He actually can be our portion. He desires to be our portion more than we, of course, desire him to be such. He is attainable. Listen to what Paul said. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It is something Paul pursued because he knew he could get it. You see, God is attainable. He can be your portion. Next, whatever it is that we choose to be our portion must be able to sustain us, don't you think? You don't want something running out on you. Whatever we choose had better be able to sustain us through thick and thin. We go through all sorts of things. Do you want it to give out right when it's important? No. Think of all the examples in the Bible of God sustaining his people. People in the, of Israel in the wilderness. David running from Saul. Jonah, even in the fish, belly of a fish. Paul's journeys, Christian stories throughout Christian history. God sustains his people. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 6.10, having nothing, possessing everything, God sustained him all along the way. Have you ever experienced the sustaining grace of God in some situations that you've gone through? You probably have. If you've been a Christian for more than a year, you probably have. If you haven't, just wait. Next, this, this portion must bring satisfaction and delight. And how does God fit that bill? We certainly don't want to hang our entire life on something that doesn't work, that doesn't bring us joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, happiness. It doesn't make any sense to even go there, right? But this is exactly what we do when we pursue worldly things. 
We, we lay our hopes on things that can't fulfill. <laughs> and we're told this before we start. And we still go down that road. New cars lose their attraction at the first oil change, right? New clothes lose their attraction, their satisfaction, their joy, as soon as someone walks past with something nicer on. And you go, rags, i got to go back to the store. Right? God's ability to satisfy and bring delight relates to his infinitude. He's infinite in this category. Nothing else in all creation is capable of completely satisfying us. That is God's area. That is God's intent. I think we see in Ecclesiastes, Solomon demonstrating this very truth. In his pursuit of all these things, try to find joy, find satisfaction, he does not. So if there were anything available that could satisfy us other than God, then God and us would have a major problem. Is there anything that can satisfy the desires of our soul other than our soul's creator? There are many things that might entertain us or distract us for a while, but to truly satisfy the soul requires the work of its creator. And it's designed that way. We've all proved this point in our own experience, haven't we? If we choose God as our portion, we must know that, first of all and foremost, he's satisfied with himself. You don't want to choose something or someone that's not satisfied themselves, right? Well, is God satisfied with God? If that were a, you know, a question on your theology quiz, how would you do? Is God satisfied with God? The answer is, of course, a resounding yes, but a passage that might support this is Luke 3.22. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And what do we believe about the Trinity? God, Father, and Son. They are God. Is God satisfied with God? Yes. It says, I am well pleased. So are you delighted in God? Or does it take something else? God and my new truck? God and my job, God and my family. If you were to separate God from any one of those things, would you still be with God in terms of satisfaction? David seemed to be in Psalm 4. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. When it gets as good as it can possibly get for my neighbors, I've got more. Is what David's saying. It seemed that Peter had the same opinion. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. Now listen, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Delighted, God is delighted in himself. God's people have been delighted in God throughout human history. So how about you and me? Is God your delight? Is he your portion? Or does it take something else in the equation to make it work for you? So how are we to 
keep God as our portion or make God our portion if he's not yet that? How do we keep or make God our portion and not be distracted by all that the world's flashing at us? We know that there are those, maybe somewhere in this room, whose portion, that thing that makes them tick, that thing that gets them up in the morning, are bound to this fleeting world. We know, we, we know people like that. Maybe we, we're one of them. These worldly folk pursue the best portion they can possibly think of or their eye can see. And, and, and all they're doing is simply responding to what their natural eyes can perceive. Their view is restricted to the mundane and temporal because the eternal and spiritual beyond their perception. We read of this in 1 Corinthians 2.14 where, where Paul says the natural man can't perceive these things. It, it takes the presence of the Holy Spirit for you to perceive the value of God, the joy and happiness that's found only in him. Even if the worldly folks have a hint of something greater, something divine, they reject it because they have no spiritual interest, no capacity. Even if they believe there's a supreme being, they don't believe that they can know him, and certainly he's not the source of joy. The concerning thing is that we Christians can be deceived and led astray looking for our hope and joy and fulfillment in worldly affairs just like our neighbor's. And we, we get caught regularly with this, don't we? That's the concerning thing. And it offends God, by the way, when his people do this. This is what he said through Jeremiah in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A double slap in the face. So we have, we have a fountain, an, uh, an infinite fountain of joy and satisfaction, fulfillment, pouring into our life, pouring into our soul, and we're going, that isn't exactly what I was looking for. Let me go over here and, and dig a hole in the ground and see if I can get my own. Let me go over here and, and make up my own joy, my own happiness with things you've already given me, God, these created things. Let me see if this will do it. And how many times do we have to hear it? How many books do we have to read before we really truly understand and grasp and embrace this truth? That created things aren't designed to bring us joy and happiness. They're, they're, they're designed to enjoy, but not to be the ultimate source and fulfillment that our souls crave. These things, these cisterns that, that are in our lives that that God has given us as gifts are simply designed to point us back to the good, loving creator. So how, friends, are we going to keep or get God as our portion in case you find yourself here today not having that? Well, um, we have help. We have help that we find in the gospel of God in Christ. We have help from the, the gospel principles and truths in scripture. And the first is this, the gift of faith, and it's a gift. The gift of faith gives us clear vision of what is real. It helps us decipher what 
actually will fulfill, what will satisfy the longing of our souls. This gift of faith accomplishes that. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1.18. Speaking of those who have been saved, Paul says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. How does that work? How do you have your eyes open, unveiled, so you can see what is truly valuable and joy-filling? The Holy Spirit enters and converts your soul. And the Holy Spirit, by His grace, convinces you that what this world is offering, what this world is selling, isn't going to do it. And drawing you to God. This is the second thing. So the first is the gift of faith, and the second is the second help is that the Father is actually currently drawing you if you're in Christ, causing you to see what is real, to embrace what is fulfilling and joyful. Jesus said in John 6:44, "No one comes to me unless what? The Father draws him. So we have the work of God the Father involved in He Himself making Him our portion. God is drawing us to Himself so that He will be that portion. Turn back one page to verse 36 in Psalm 119. This was the prayer of the psalmist. He's pleading with God. He knows exactly what I've been telling you. That God is the only hope and only source and only place of joy. And so the psalmist says in verse 36, Incline my heart to your testimony and not to selfish gain. Don't be, be, let me be distracted by what the world is selling. God, I want you. And so he prays this prayer. God is in the business of creating and refining our desires. God wants to be our portion is there any possession greater than God? Your friends may say, I got a really nice truck. And your answer would be, I've got God. Your friends would say, well, I got a condo Lake Chelan. Your reply would be, well, I've got God. Your friend may come back again, well, you know what? I've, I've got an amazing, fantastic retirement plan. I've got God. Does anything trump God? No, of course not. God outshines new vehicles, vacation properties, and financial stability. So the first thing that we must consider in way of, by way of application from the first half of verse 57 is, is God my portion? Just take a quick look, superficial look, and you can tell. Is God my portion or is something else doing the trick for me? Have you been convinced of the matter, that he is the only one deserving your greatest affection? I, I think one of our application points here must be that we should be praying that we are never satisfied with worldly things. If you're content with worldly things, then God is not your portion. What a hor horrible judgment this is to be condemned to worldly happiness, to be condemned to an ongoing, never-ending pursuit of fulfillment. What a condemnation. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, don't you? 
In life, the rich man had everything he wanted, he thought. Lazarus was poor and didn't have anything, and yet he was content. Along comes death for both men, and what do we discover? Lazarus continues in his, his satisfaction, his joy, his peace, but without all the things that interrupted that before death. But what about the rich man? Help! Was his concern? The importance of making God your portion runs, friends, into eternity. What do you think the first commandment's all about? You will have no other gods before me. Did God say that because he's an egotist? No. God said that because he's committed to your joy. He knows. He's your creator of your soul. He's a lover of your soul. He knows if you pursue things, you're going to ultimately end up very dissatisfied. Not fulfilled. Not happy. And so God says, don't let anything get in the way of me. You won't like it, is what God's saying. Not because he's going to punish us, but because those things won't fulfill. God is not our portion unless he holds the highest place in our affections. Is he your best possession? Would you trade God for anything? He rewards those who claim him as their portion. You remember Psalm 23.1? We just heard it read earlier. The Lord is my shepherd. How does it end? I shall not want. Where does that not wanting come from? From the Lord being your shepherd. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In my uh, ADD-ness, in my studies this past week, you know, I'm sitting around, my mind's doing this and that and the other thing, and I'm thinking, hey, we might have an acrostic here. And so I've got one for you to try, see if it works. Uh, and it's get top delight. I don't know if that's an acrostic or not, but it's close. So how, what, is this, how does this mean, what does this mean? So get top delight, G-T-O-P-D. Uh, first, get as much of God in your life as possible. What do you, how do you do that? Well, you're on a good start for this week. You're here. All right? Keep this thing going all week. All right? Keep pursuing God. Where is he found? In Scripture, in his people. Keep, keep after God. Get as much God as you can. Read the Scriptures. Pray the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures. Commune with God. Get as much of God in your life as possible, like Paul told the Philippian church in 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My Lord, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And what? Count them as rubbish compared to Christ, that I may gain Christ. So get as much as God as possible. Second, T, trust. By your trust God in life. When, when things go poorly, when things go well, 
Lamentations 3.24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. No matter what comes, good or bad, trust God. Oh, obedience. By your obedience, Jesus said, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commands. You'll do what I say. Get as much God as possible. Trust what he's doing in your life. Obey what he's saying in your life. And fourth, like we've already said this, but praying. What are you praying for in life? Do you ask, do you ask God to do this thing in your heart? That, that he will make him your possession, your portion? Are you praying that, that you will possess God? And not just have more stuff that he provides? Dads, how would you like this? Your, your kids love you because you give them allowance. That wouldn't make you feel too good. Well, listen to the Hosea 7.14. God speaking through the prophet, he says, they, speaking of his people, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine and gash, them, gash themselves and rebel against me. Whenever they do pray, or they're just asking for stuff, they could care less about me, God, the infinite supply of joy and happiness and fulfillment. All they want is stuff. What are you praying for? A new job? Better car? Better friends? What are you praying for? And then D, we've got this get, top, delight. D is delight. By your delighting in God, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You're saying, okay, well, if I behave, I'm a good boy. God will give me my desires, right? Is that how you read that? If so, it's wrong. <laughs> what's, what's the psalmist saying here? What the psalmist is saying is that God replaces your desires with his desires. God, God will make you want what he wants you to want. He will create a, a passion in you for him if you'll just but delight in him. Spend time in him, get as much of him as you can, pray, obey, etc. Delighting in God. You remember the author of Hebrews when he said this, without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to him God must um, believe, wait a minute, Forever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. What do you think God rewards those who seek him with? Stuff? No. With himself. He rewards those who seek him with more of himself, of which he has an infinite supply. Delight in God. Come to our second point here, very short, the godly practice. Verse 1, uh, chapter um, 119.57b, the godly practice. The Lord is my portion, and here's what we need to do about this. Keep his word. You know, if the Lord is your portion, you'll do everything you can to keep his word. You know, if you want God to be your portion, you'll do everything you can to keep his word. 
So whether you want it or have it, you'll do everything you can to keep his word. The challenging part, of course, is this takes effort. Don't you wish that when you became a Christian, you woke up the next morning, that guy. Wouldn't that be nice? Of course, then you wouldn't need God. And here you go. That's the point, right? Becoming a godly man or a woman, friends, becoming a godly young person doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by chance or by the right DNA. Getting God as your portion is through his word, his revelation of himself to us. This is the primary teaching of Psalm 119. You want God? Here you go, is what the psalmist is saying. The Heth stanza lays out, that's the stanza that 57 through 64, the Heth stanza lays out what it's going to take for those of you who truly want God. You want God to be your portion, right? Well, let's, let's just look what these eight verses say. And I'm just going to review them quickly. Requires that we seek God's face. He says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. It requires we follow God's word in all areas of our lives. It requires that we remember God's word when others try to draw us away, lure us away. It requires we focus on God's word, not on our fears and anxieties. What do, you, what, what do you do when you wake up in the middle of the night? Worry about your job, worry about your kids, worry about your health? Or what this guy who's God is his portion, at midnight I rise to praise you. It requires us to focus on God's word, not our fears. It requires us that we surround ourselves with godly people. You see that in verse 63? I'm a companion of those who fear you. I'm a buddy. They're my buddy. I'm this close to them. Friends, we can really help each other here. If you just seek God a little bit more, it'll help me seek God a little more. And then we'll just start blowing it up. Friends, it's not going to happen by accident. Augustine's great prayer, I think one of the more important things he said, this arguably one of the best theologians the world's ever known, maybe even one of the best thinkers the world has ever known, Augustine said this, Lord, give me thyself. <laughs> there is not a more profound prayer. Give me you, God, should be our waking and sleeping prayer. Similarly, the psalmist says in 73, 25, and 26, Who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing else. And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm going down with this one, is what the, what the psalmist is saying. That's what Augustine's saying. Paul, Peter, James. That's what they're all saying. Friends, if we take God as our portion, according to the second half of this verse, we must take him not as just our king, but as our Lord. So many people just want to, you know, 
take the offer, of, the offer of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and put it in their back pocket and then go live for themselves. No, hold on. We can't divide God that way. Lord and Savior is the teaching of Scripture. Friends, is God your portion? Do you want Him to be your portion if He's not? Psalm 119 is the vehicle. Let's get in and run this thing. And pray that God will do his work. Pray with me now. Lord, we have and are nothing without you. I believe that those who have the Holy Spirit of God within them, have this thought also in their mind, God do this in my heart. That's our prayer. We want, we want, we claim Augustine's prayer. We claim the psalmist's prayer. God be my portion. Remove the distractions of this world from your people. Help us to pursue you wholeheartedly, embracing all that you are, trusting everything that you do, good and bad. God, make this so in us. Be our portion. That is the only request we really have. Do this for us, God. Make it happen. Make it so. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.